Thank you for joining us for the True Life Fellowship Church podcast. Here is today's message from Pastor Devon Alexander. Amen. So if you're turning your Bibles as we get started here to Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. My wife told me last time, I believe, amen, that I, I spent too long talking before I said turning your Bibles. So I want to get you in early today. Hallelujah. And it says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. We are the light of the world. We sang a lot of things earlier about Jesus being the light of the world, but how many of you know we're supposed to be conformed to his image? And so if he is the light of the world, then we also should be the light of the world. I was thinking of a waymaker, you know, he's a promise keeper. We should be promise keepers. He's a way maker. We should be making ways for other people. He's a miracle worker. If you've got the power of Jesus at work in your life, you should be working miracles. Amen. Miracle size of wonder should follow you throughout the place you go. And we should be, by all means, a light in the darkness. Now, if you cannot find the darkness, see me after. I will point you in the right direction. It's out there. It is out there. The darkness is, unfortunately, alive and well. But God has called us to be a light in the world. A light in the world. So let me go back because here's the part that all of you are expecting that you know is in the Bible. And you don't have to turn to all these. I'll tell you when to turn because I got about, you see, I printed my own personal Bible to bring with me today, right? Because I got a bunch of scriptures. But you don't have to turn to all of them. But this first one here, Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, you don't have to turn there. It says, for we are citizens of heaven. Did you know that? Amen. And Ephesians 2.19 says, You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We are citizens of heaven. If anybody disputes that, that's wrong. We are citizens of heaven. But a lot of times we think of that and saying, Well, you know, I don't have to deal with what's going on in this world because I'm a citizen of heaven. None of this pertains to me. And that's true to a degree, but we're not home yet. Amen. We are not home yet. The Lord has not called us home. When he does, and I believe that day is coming soon, then things are really going to go downhill, right? I I don't want to be here to see it. You don't want to be here to see it. But it's going to get bad. When when the church is gone, it's going to get bad. But for here and now, he's not taking us away yet. We're still in the world. Well, why are we in the world? We're in the world so we can be the light of the world. We are in the world to be the light of the world. And God intentionally created you. You watching, you here in the house today, you wherever you are, to be in a specific place at a specific time with specific people doing specific things. There is an assignment on your life. You know, oftentimes we think, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we just lived in the world of George Jetson and family and we could just zoom around? But that's not where God called you to be. Wouldn't it be cool, you know, if we could live in uh, in the 1700s and we could be part of the American Revolution? Well, that's not where God called you to be. And if you're sitting here with me today, God didn't call you to be in Bangladesh, Tokyo, uh, Moscow, um, Bogota, anywhere else. He called you to be in Charlotte, North Carolina right now. That's where you're called to be. And he didn't do that on accident. It wasn't like, uh, you know, you woke up and here you are. He's like, oops. No, no, that's not the way God operates. He put you here on purpose and he put you on purpose for such a time as this to be the light in the world. And part of that plan for you is not only what you're going to do as far as your family is concerned and what you're going to do in the, in your career, but also your relationship as citizens, not only citizens of heaven, but citizens in an earthly government. Everybody say, that's me. Amen. And there are plenty of biblical examples of people being citizens in earthly government. You know, too often we think, like I said a minute ago, this is the worldly system and here's us. And, and there's an imaginary line and we don't go back and forth. But that's not, that's not the way God has done it. If that was the case, we'd be up in heaven already. We are here to participate in earthly government to some degree. Amen. 
we see that Joseph, y'all remember Joseph and he had his fancy colorful coat? And he ended up being, if you've not seen the Disney movie, spoiler alert, it's in the title, the Prince of Egypt, right? He, or maybe that was Moses. I'll get to him in a second. But Joseph, sorry, so I read the Bible. I promise I did. I promise I did. Joseph ended up, he had a, a terrible struggle to get there, but Joseph ended up being number two. We'll just call it vice president to make it easy. He ended up being vice president of Egypt during his time there. Did the Lord use him in earthly government? Yes, he did. Moses, as I mentioned a moment earlier with my wrong Disney movie, so sorry, was the prince of Egypt. He was raised in Pharaoh's household. Did the Lord use him in secular government? Yes, he did. What about uh, the nation of Israel? Did God set that up? Yes, he did. You know, David, despite all the time Saul tried to kill him, would never fight back because he said Saul was the Lord's anointed one. Well, that means that God established Saul to participate in worldly government. What about Daniel? And what do the veggie tales call him? Rekshak and Benny? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel, they were all part of the Babylonian royal court. They were very active in worldly government. Esther became queen of the Medo-Persian Empire. She was active in earthly government. Okay, well, well, great, Matt, that's wonderful, but all those folks are Old Testament. We're under the New Covenant. I agree with you. What about Jesus? He obviously overthrew the Romans, right? No. No, Jesus paid taxes. That, that was his way of participating to some degree in earthly government. And Paul, you know, Paul is the one that said we're citizens of heaven. You know, we're members of the household of God. But Paul was a Roman citizen, and that's something that he used for the kingdom on several occasions. Um, and you don't have to turn there either, but Acts chapter 16, Paul was in jail in Philippi. And, you know, they got him out of jail, and he said, whoa, 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 you, you can't just throw me in jail. I'm a citizen. Again, we see Acts chapter 22, they were getting ready to beat him, and he said, you can't beat me. I'm a citizen. And then guess what? He really wanted to get to the top of the food chain. He wanted to go talk to the emperor, who at the time was Nero, so he appealed to Caesar. Guess who didn't get to do that? People that weren't citizens. The reason Paul was able to do a lot of the things he was for the kingdom was because of his earthly citizenship. Did God have a plan for Paul as an earthly citizen? Amen. And he's got a plan for each and every one of us as well. So our fundamental question today is how should Christians interact with non-Christian governments? How should Christians, that's us, interact with non-Christian governments? I was originally going to say secular governments, but the truth is there are people in the body of Christ that have to uh, interact with governments that may not necessarily be secular. There are Christians in China right now with the atheistic communist government, right? They don't get the, the luxuries of a secular government. They're actively oppressed by the Chinese Communist Party. There are Christians in North Korea, communist atheistic government. There are Christians in Iran and Saudi Arabia and throughout the Islamic world where they have a Muslim theocracy for a government instead of a secular government. So, uh, you know, as frustrating as a secular government may be sometimes, it's a little bit of a blessing compared to what some of our brothers and sisters in the body have to deal with each and every day. Amen? So how do we interact with a non-Christian government? And there are three questions that are really part of that, and that is, uh, what is the believer's role in government, you know, and what is, the, what is a non-Christian government, and what is the difference between being a citizen and a resident? Often we think of ourselves as residents in the world, but I encourage you today to move past that thinking and understand you're not just a resident, you are a citizen. Look at your neighbor and say, I am a citizen. Amen. And you may not be a citizen of uh, where I'm sitting right now, but you're a citizen of somewhere, and the Lord expects you to operate within that. Hallelujah. So what is a non-Christian government? Well, that's easy, Matt. It's a government that's not Christian. Well, true story. That is a pretty easy question to answer. So what is a Christian government? 
That one gets a little bit trickier. Let me help you out. Amen. There is no such thing as a true Christian theocracy. I hear oftentimes people, when they start thinking about politicians, get nervous because all of a sudden if we elect to this, then the whole country is going to be that. Um, but in the world of Christians, that's never really an option. To do that, you would have to have a government that was composed entirely of born-again, spirit-led believers doing everything that the Lord told them to do. If you have found that government, please point me that direction. I would like to go observe it. But what I've seen is people not doing what the Lord wants them to do. Anybody else seen that? People not doing what the Lord has told them to do. Right. If people, even if they were just to follow the old Mosaic law, if people followed God's law, or if they followed the guidance of the Holy Spirit, or they followed the teaching of Jesus, if they followed any of that, we would not need a government. You wouldn't. The Holy Spirit would be your government, or the law would be your government. James Madison, he's not in the Bible, but he famously said this, and I think it's relevant for today. If men were angels, no government would be necessary. I think about it, I'll talk about them a little bit more in a minute, but I, uh, in addition to other things I do, happen to have four children, four girls, I can't call them children because then people think I have a son. I have four girls, four girls in my house, ages 17, 13, 11, and 7, and I'm still standing. Hallelujah. But if my girls did everything I said, we wouldn't have the need for things like consequences. Amen? If they just, uh, anybody else, parents, y'all know what I'm talking about? If your kids just did what you said, when you said, how you said, with a good attitude and a smile on their face, we wouldn't need, you know, things like punishment. Amen. The same thing with us. If we just did what the Lord said, we wouldn't need a government. But we don't do, well, maybe you perfectly follow what God tells you to do. But a lot of your neighbors don't. And because they don't, we need governments. So there are so-called Christian governments. The most famous is the Holy Roman Empire. Do you know they did not do everything the way the Lord wanted them to do? Whole lot of sin in the Holy Roman Empire. And any other so-called Christian government, you've got the Church of England was a Christian government, so to speak. Lots of sin going on there as well. Anytime we have a so-called Christian government, we see a lot of sin there. So those really aren't true Christian governments. The closest thing we have to a true Christian government is the kingdom. And we'll get there. And even on earth, we have the kingdom working um, in a limited capacity. But it'll come in fullness, you know, once we once we go on to heaven. Uh, the closest thing we see in the here and now is the church. That's the closest thing we have to a true Christian government. But it is very much an imperfect example. Amen. So there is no Christian government, so to speak. So any worldly government is then a non-Christian government. What is a non-Christian government? Any government in the world. Now those worldly governments, they uh, the non-Christian governments, they vary in how hostile they are to our faith. My youngest daughter, well, we were all driving the other day. My kids play basketball, and I was taking them to basketball practice, and a van, a very a very sanctified person, drove past us in a van that said, "Jesus loves you" on the back of it. And before I could comment, one of my kids said, "Can we put Jesus loves you all over the back of our car?" and I didn't get a chance to, well, you know, you're laughing, Drew. I was thinking about saying yes, because it looked like it was, you know, the kind of thing that wasn't going to ruin the paint job, right? So I said, I was about to say yes, and then my other daughter, my youngest, she's seven, she said, no, what if we went to another country and they saw it, they would kill us? And I thought, well, that's a little bit fearful. I'm glad that she knows, I'm glad that she knows that, that Christians are persecuted. However, the truth is not everywhere we might drive the van would get us assassinated for Jesus loves you. Being on it. Amen? Amen. So they vary in that. However, if we drove the Jesus Loves You van into North Korea, assuming the water wasn't an issue, if we just drove it there, they may not like that. 
right? It would be a real problem in some places, but in other places, not so much. So governments vary in how tolerant they are of Christianity. Some countries that we said earlier, they prohibit any worship at all. If you mention the name Jesus, you're going to jail, right? They can't have any Bibles in there. You have to smuggle Bibles into these places. Other countries say, um, you know, you can worship, but it has to be the way we tell you to worship. You can't worship however you want to. Uh, you know, you can worship at the mosque on Friday. If you want to go to the church on Sunday, that's a no-go, right? And then the most common one that, that we have in the United States of America, at least, is a secular government, which tolerates your beliefs as long as you don't break any laws. And so there's this, this line that exists between what the law is. They don't necessarily care what you believe, but they get very bothered sometimes by what you do with it. I'll say that again. They don't care what you believe. You believing that Jesus is anything doesn't bother them at all. But the moment you say something about it or you do something about it, that can become a very big problem in certain situations. Amen? Listen how quiet it is today. I'm not here by myself. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. And, and we've seen that. Uh, in the past. So what happens a lot of times is you may be able to believe what you want to do and step out and do things with it without violating the law. But there is a spirit oftentimes in government, any government, not just this country, that wants to push back on that and make the laws to the point where you following your Christian beliefs is automatically a violation. I don't know, Matt, that sounds a little over the top. Well, let me just take you through the Bible real fast, see if we can find some examples. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were royalty. They were chosen. They were uh, flawless, so the Babylonian emperor thought. He brought them into his court, and he was training them up and giving them all the Babylonian knowledge, and some people didn't like them, and they weren't doing anything wrong, and so they couldn't do anything about it. So they changed the law and said, oh, P.S., there's this big graven image that you have to bow down and worship. Well, if you recall back in the Ten Commandments, that's a big no-no. No graven images, no idols, no idolatry. That was a big no-no. And they said, hey, listen, you know, we've been happy to obey the laws. We, we cannot obey this new law. That's not going to work out for us. And they got a death sentence. Obviously a very tolerant government right there in the Babylonian Empire. They got thrown into a fiery furnace, right? Death sentence because the law changed. How about their friend Daniel? Daniel came in from the day he was exiled. He went up to his room as it was his custom, and he faced Jerusalem and prayed three times a day. Never a problem. Everybody got along wonderfully with it. But some people didn't like that. And so what they did was they changed the law. And when they changed the law, all of a sudden Daniel found himself not in a hot furnace, but as snack bait in the lion's den, right? He was supposed to be their breakfast. Did not uh, obviously work out that way. The Lord delivered him, but he got a death sentence. The law changed. He was faithful to do what God told him to do, and he got a death sentence. How about Esther? You know, Esther was following the laws, and the new law was kill all the Jews. She would have died had she continued to follow the law there. Okay, well, that's great, man. That's all in the Old Testament. What about in the modern world? Does this matter to us? There are people who very much think that the Word of God is hate speech. They would love for that to be illegal. Oh, but they would never change the law. Would they not? Would they not? Because we just saw in the past that it's happened a whole lot. Unless y'all know something that I don't about human nature has changed a whole bunch. In the, no? So that's a real risk. Do we see that's a real risk? Yeah, and so countries vary in how hostile they are. The governments vary in how hostile they are 
to Christianity. But there's a risk, you know, in a modern government that even if you're doing everything right, don't expect it to stay that way for long because there's a spirit that gets offended with that and wants to change the rules so that you are breaking them so they can punish you. It's just, it's human. nobody's mad at you personally for it. That's just the way humanity works. Amen? Governments tend to oppose God, not just tolerate Him or do something different, but actively oppose Him when they contradict His will. Here's a big one. When they try to replace Him, and when they end up being self-centered or self-seeking, when they're trying to get people to worship themselves instead of allowing them to freely worship the Lord. Those when governments begin to oppose God is when they do those three things. So what about here in the United States? There are some things in our government in particular that relate to the way we operate as Christian citizens in non-Christian governments. The first of all is our First Amendment. Uh, some of you are more familiar with this than others. If you are seven and sitting here today, you probably don't know about the First Amendment, so let me catch you up. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of a religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Not in the Bible, but in the Bill of Rights. That's important to you as Americans. Congress cannot do two things. They cannot force you to worship a certain way, and they cannot keep you from worshiping a certain way. That's what the First Amendment says. Amen. And the second thing we have in the United States is called the separation of church and state. And some of you are thinking, well, that's not a thing. Well, let me tell you a little bit about the separation of church and state, because it does get uh, a bad rap sometimes. And it's frustrating, because honestly, we wish that everybody just believed what we believed, that we could all hold hands, sing kumbaya, worship the Lord, skipping down the yellow brick road until we get on to glory. But it doesn't work that way in practice. So this idea of the wall of separation between church and state actually got its first legal mention. The first time it was mentioned in any legal document was... I know y'all are expecting me to say something like 17 or 18-something. The answer is 1947. The first time we see that in any legal document was in Everson versus the Board of Education, a court case, in 1947. So why do we think that this is such a permanent fixture of our society when it's only been around since 1947? Some of y'all have been around longer than the separation of church and state. I won't look at anybody in particular right now. I'll just go back to my notes. Hallelujah. Well, it's an older idea. It may not have been legally mentioned until 1947, but Thomas Jefferson wrote about it in a letter back in 1802. And as part of the letter, he said, you know, it really was the intent of the First Amendment to separate church and state so they don't get in each other's way. Um, But it goes back further than that. There's a guy named Martin Luther. Some of you may have heard of him. He's kind of a big deal. And Martin Luther had this thing that there were two kingdoms. He didn't think that the Roman Catholic Church should be governing the people and leading them spiritually. He said, you know, there's one kingdom that's the kingdom of God, and then there's another kingdom that's the kingdom of men. And so Martin Luther had this idea back in the 1500s, but it actually goes back even further than that. Did you know that Jesus actually talked a little bit about this? Jesus did. Now, he didn't say there is a wall of separation between church and... He didn't say those exact words, but he did say in John 18, 36, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. There's his kingdom, and there's this world, and there's that big word, not, in the middle of it. There's a separation there between Jesus' kingdom and this world. So there's a little bit of a biblical principle there. And then he says again in Matthew 22, 21, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So some things are Caesar's, and they need to go to Caesar. And to God, the things that are God's. So while we may be frustrated with this idea of separation between church and state, there is some biblical precedent for it. Jesus kind of endorsed it, and it's gone further. And here's what it really does for us, is it protects believers from the inevitable tyranny of 
carnal government, right? And so we said earlier that the natural trajectory as government is to change the rules to where you end up being in trouble. Well, here in the United States, that's kind of a protection for us. This idea that church and state have a line between them, yes, it, it sometimes keeps us from going a little further than we would like to, but it also keeps government from coming over. We talked earlier about the Bible being hate speech. Well, Technically, that's illegal. Now, do I think they'll still try it? Absolutely. They'll try it. But that would be the government preventing us from reading the Bible and saying it out loud, which is our right as citizens to freely exercise. Amen? I was expecting a bigger amen there. Amen? Amen. You know, the government cannot regulate your relationship to God through reading his word, through saying his word out loud. And, and so there may be a wall between the church and state, but here's where there's not a wall between the body of Christ and taking an active role in government. There's nothing that separates that. Amen? So what is the believer's role in government? We've established what a non-Christian government is. What is your role as a saint, a member of the body of Christ in that government? Well, first of all, you need to do what's within your power to use your government to fulfill God's purposes for government. I taught about this last year, so if you don't have those fresh in your mind, I encourage you to go back and review it. But There are a few things that God designed earthly governments to do, to defend life and preserve justice, to make and apply laws to establish boundaries and consequences, to get rid of decisions, laws, and policies which contradict God's will. We need to stop replacing God as a people's source for needs, rights, and morality. We need to stop doing that. And we need to act in the best interest of citizens instead of, you know, the people in power. Those are God's purposes for government in a general sense. He may also have a specific purpose related to a time. You know, he may want a government to go and stop a different government, for instance, uh, World War II. You know, the United States played an active role in stopping the Holocaust, Was God's plan for the United States to help stopping the Holocaust? I would argue, yes, God did not like the Holocaust, and we were operating in accordance with his will by stopping it. So we have to first get our government to act in accordance with God's will. The second thing, and this is a really important one, is prayer. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to James chapter 5, I believe, verse 16. And I'll read through the first part, but that's not what we're looking at. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. But here's the part I want you to to put your eyes on. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Well, effective and fervent means that, first of all, it's not a wasted prayer. It's going to yield some fruit. And fervent means that it's continuous, it's dedicated, it's persistent. You know, Pastor talked a few weeks ago about Consistent and persistent. I would look at it this way. Consistent is more defense and persistent. You're on offense. The fervent prayer. You're praying continually. You're praying until you get your results. You're not giving up. You're pushing in. You're pressing in. You are praying with persistency. The fervent prayer of a righteous man. Say that's me. Avails much. What is much? Is that just a little bit extra? Well, you could go through and study it further, but that word much is, that's a a multiplication word. Amen. So when you are praying fervently, if you are a righteous man and you are praying persistently, your prayers avail much. So could you accomplish great things in your government just through your prayer life? Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the worst things I've heard, and I understand the context. I understand what they were saying. It was in the aftermath of one of the, the school shootings, and people were all over social media saying, thoughts and prayers. And, and somebody said, we need more than thoughts and prayers. Well, well what, what they meant was you need more than somebody typing thoughts and prayers on Facebook. But if you actually need more than prayer, then you're probably not praying right. Amen? 
If you need more than prayer, then your prayers aren't availing much. If you think you can do more with the stroke of a pen than you can the presence of Almighty God that you've invited into the situation, your prayers aren't doing much. So you can do far more, far more through prayer than you can through any of those other things. Amen? What should we pray for? That's great, Matt. We should pray. What should we pray for? Well, first of all, you need to pray that the government will align its actions with God's plan. Like we talked about just a minute ago, one way that you can help steer the government the direction it needs to go, probably the biggest way you can help steer the government the way it needs to go, is through your prayer life. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.2 says we have to pray for kings and all who are in authority. For what? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. We should pray for that. Another thing we should pray for is the direction of our country. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Now, maybe, maybe you're watching this and your government leaders do everything the Lord wants them to do. That's not always the case here in the United States. But praise God, it can be. I think too often, especially after elections, we say, Oh, man, the guy that we think had the Lord's heart on this did not win. So we need to just give up and wait four years and try again. You don't have to raise your hands for that. That's okay. But but we've all been there. You know, half the country likes one guy and hates the other guy every four years. That's the way it works. And what happens when your guy doesn't make it? Do you just give up? Or do you pray because you know that the Lord can steer that person's heart? You don't have to answer out loud because I see what y'all do. Amen. I may have done it myself. But here's what we should do and what I'm going to do. And what I've, I've, I've been doing this, I started later in life than I should have, but I do it now. I pray. It doesn't matter who, I mean, it matters who gets in there. Like you, we'll talk about voting in a minute, but whoever shows up, the Lord can use them. Right. If he can use a donkey, then he can use one of those, one of those guys in Washington, right? If he can use you, he can use a president or a senator or a representative, right? If he can use whatever he needs to, and that includes a politician, he can do it. So don't just give up on things because your guy didn't win. No, pray that the king's heart is in your hands, Lord. Turn it so that we can, uh, whichever way you wish, Lord, so we can follow your will better. Here's another one, because sometimes the, the truth is, as much as uh, we pray, there are some people whose hearts are, hearts are hardened. You remember Pharaoh, God, the Lord hardened his heart. Well, what about somebody's hard-hearted and the Lord is speaking to them and they won't listen? What do you do then? Well, the word says you could pray for the removal and replacement of hard-hearted leaders. Psalm 109.8 says, let his days be few and let another take his office. Should you pray that? I would say at times, yes, but in general, don't start with that. You know, we just had the election. No, we didn't, but I'm saying hypothetically. Have the election last night and pray for removal today. No, pray that the Lord will, will steer them first. Pray that the Lord will minister through them. But if they don't, then pray for their days to be few and somebody else take his office. Well, who else? Sometimes the devil you don't know is worse. Than, well, hold on. Daniel 2.21 says he removes kings and raises up kings. So, you know, if the Lord is going to replace someone in accordance with your prayers, if you're going to pray the other guy out, surely you've got enough faith in you to pray a good listener in. Amen? Amen. What else should we pray for? You should pray for your country's uh, political and social climate. If you don't like the way things are in your country, pray it. Pray about it. Pray till it gets fixed. Second uh, Chronicles 7.14, a very famous passage, says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, look at the promise here at the end, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Is there a need for healing in your country? Amen. Oh, no, now we're awake. Okay, there is a need for healing in our country. How is that going to happen? Through prayer. 
through prayer. Pray for the Lord to heal things there, to restore things. He's a God of restoration, amen? So let him operate not only in your own life, but invite him to have his way in the country as well. Hallelujah. Psalm 33, 12 says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. If you are inviting the Lord to have his way in the nation, is there any reason his blessing would not follow? Amen. We need healing in our land. We need blessing in our land. These things happen through prayer. And then turn quickly to uh, Jeremiah chapter 29. You don't have to turn there that quickly. Just Jeremiah chapter 29, I believe. And verse 7. Everybody knows 29 11. Nobody knows 29 7. So read this with me here. And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive and pray to the Lord for it. Because here's what the Lord's going to do. He says, for in its peace, you will have peace. You know, the Lord could do a lot for you through angels and through, you know, favor. But the Lord can also, if you pray for the peace of your government, help you to have peace through your government. If the Lord can use everything else to get you peace, can he not use the government? Amen. How does that happen? Through prayer. Through prayer. Amen. The next thing we need to do as Christians and non-Christians governments is vote. Now, you don't always get a chance to vote, right? Depending on where you're watching from, you may never be able to vote. Uh, and in this country, there were times where certain groups couldn't vote. Right now, if you're under age 18, you cannot vote. But your day is coming. Hallelujah. But when we're voting, it's our chance to help use our God-given authority to steer the government in pursuit of God's purposes. You know, there's authority, Romans chapter 13, verse 1 says, For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Well, who has the authority in the United States of America? Who gets to make the decisions? According to the Constitution, that's we the people. Amen? The voters. The voters are the ones with the authority. That authority has been given to you by God, and so you should be using that Use your authority to help pursue God's interests in your worldly government. There are ways you do that. The the biggest one is voting, and there are four kinds of uh, candidates that we elect. The first is our leaders. So we'll talk about leaders in a minute, but not everybody you elect is a leader. Leaders include things like president, governor, mayor. There are a lot of people that we think of as being leaders. They're not necessarily leaders. They're what we call representatives. That's the second class. Uh, Congressional representatives, senators, uh, the state house, the general assembly in North and South Carolina where we are, that would be those those folks. County commissioners, city council. These are people that work for you. So you don't have to drive to Washington every time they need to vote on something, and you don't have to drive to Raleigh or Columbia or wherever. You send somebody in your stead, and they're supposed to represent you. Are they leading you or are they representing you? They're representing you. Okay, a third category of candidates we elect, and you don't always elect these. Some of them are appointed, but some of them you elect are judges. Okay, you get to pick judges. Is justice important to the Lord? Yes, it is. So when you have a chance to elect a judge, should you pray about that and vote for somebody that's going to establish justice? Yes, you should. Yes, you should. And then the fourth category, and this is one we tend to overlook, but they have been increasing in power, and so it's important to pay attention to those, are your public servants. Things like the clerk of court, your register of deeds. Here's a big one, the sheriff, right? You get a say-so in all of those things, so use your God-given authority to put people in place to do things God's way. Hallelujah. And another thing that we do as Christian citizens of non-Christian governments is abide by laws in general, you should be following the law. There are a couple of cases where you don't. I'll talk about those in a moment. But in general, you should be following the law. Uh, Romans 13, we just read a minute ago. If you pick up uh, further on from there, starting in verse 3, it says, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. Well, if you don't want to be an enemy of God, you need to follow the rules. Hallelujah. 
And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Do you want to bring judgment on yourself? Hopefully not. If you do, that's foolishness. See me after. I'll point you in the right direction. Don't do that. Amen. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Yes, you do. Well, how do you do that? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from him. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is God's minister. So it's saying that these people, not only are they representing you and leading you, but they're also God's ministers to uh, execute wrath on those that practice evil. So you have to be subject not only because you're afraid of the consequences, but also for your conscience' sake. Titus chapter 3, verse 1 says, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities and to obey. 1 Peter 2.13 says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether the king or governors or to those sent by him, to punish the evildoers and, and praise those doing right. Who has the authority again in the United States? The voters, right? God gave us the authority. And so if you, and these people are representing you, if you are setting up rules and then not following them, no, 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 no. I'm not even going to finish that sentence. Don't do that, right? Don't set up rules. Somebody got in trouble for that recently. He was a legislator and got in trouble for, I think it was a felony. I'm like, come on, you're the guy that set up the rules. Don't turn around and break the rules. If you set up the rules, don't break your own rules. If you need to break somebody else's rules sometimes, that's understandable. But if you're setting the rules, and you are because you are the authority in this world, to follow the rules. Amen? Now, there are a couple times where rules might violate Scripture. Don't follow those. There are a couple times where rules might violate your conscience. You know, your conscience, really, the Holy Spirit, once you've been born again, the Holy Spirit should be speaking to you through your conscience. So that is uh, most of the time an extension of, of the Word of God in your, at work in your life. Amen? So you should hear that and respond the same way. Uh, we see in the case of Shadrach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3.18, when they said, bow to the image, they said, let it be known to you, O king, we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Did they obey an immoral law, an unjust law? No, they didn't. We should not do that either. Daniel 6.10 says, In his upper room with his windows open toward Jerusalem, Daniel knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. Did he follow the rules when they were unjust? He did not. You should not either. And then Acts 5.29, and this should really be our guide where this is concerned. They say, We ought to obey God rather than men. Now, God says to obey men. In most situations, you can do both. But when there's a disagreement... Obey God. Everybody say, when there's a disagreement, we obey God. Hallelujah. And the final thing the Lord needs you to do as a Christian citizen of a non-Christian government is to serve. Now, he may not call all of you to service the government. Maybe he will. I don't know. But if he does, you need to be obedient to that. You know, the Lord wants people after his heart in influential government positions. He does. If you're going to be praying for those leaders to be raised up, and he tells you, hey, you're the guy, you need to be obedient. Amen? You can't just sit around, oh, who's the Lord? Like Saul. They found Saul. Saul was supposed to be king of Israel, and he was out hiding behind the woodpile. Like, where is Saul? Where is Saul? He's supposed to be anointed king today. We can't find him. If the Lord is telling you, you know, go put your name on the ballot. Well, step out in obedience. Go put your name on the ballot. Amen? Now, don't just go do it because you think, oh, look at me. I'm cool. I can get elected. Don't do that. Wait for the Lord to tell you, but if he tells you, be obedient. Hallelujah. 
That includes positions at the federal level. There's also state-level government positions in need field, local governments. Uh, how, who knows that it would be wonderful to have all Christians at the local level, you know, people doing exactly what they're supposed to do, but the state and federal governments can still mess up a lot for you, even if things are going right locally. Contrarily, the federal government can all be saved, sanctified, and led by the Holy Spirit, but the people at a local level can still ruin a lot for you, can they not? We need them at all the different levels, throughout local, state, and federal governments. We need people listening to the voice of the Lord. Do we only need it in one branch where all the laws are good, but then the Supreme Court goes and messes up a good one? No, we need it in the, in the legislative branch, in the judicial branch, and in the executive branch, and also in that administrative branch that's not really a branch that we tend to ignore. If they're going to be calling shots, we need saved people in there listening to the voice of the Lord calling those shots. Amen. Amen. What about other that we don't think of as government positions as much? The military. Do we need saved people in our military? Amen. Uh, what about first responders? Your police, fire, right? All, medic, all those guys. All of those people, that's government positions. And then even, uh, even those that you think of less being involved with, involved with the government. DOT employees, uh, educators, social workers, public servants. All of those people play a role in serving us in government. So it's important that we have the body of Christ represented throughout there, from the federal level all the way to the local level, in all the branches of government. When I go to the DOT and I have to stand in line, I want to be ministered to when I get to the counter. Amen? Right? I want to feel the joy of the Lord while I'm in there, not the misery of the devil. Hallelujah. Right? When I'm in the class, I'm a teacher, right? When I'm in the classroom, right, I need to be a godly example while I'm in there. I don't need to be in there teaching those kids all that weirdness, all the foolishness they try to have coming down. The- we don't need all that, right? You need godly people within those organizations to take a stand. You need that in every organization of government. Well, who's going to do it? Who's going to do it? If the Lord is telling you to go do one of those things, be obedient. Go do it. The Lord needs people on the inside. Hallelujah. Our final question, what is the difference between being a citizen and being a resident? Because you're like, oh, all this is great, man. But, you know, we're just residents of the world. We're citizens of the kingdom. Not quite. I've talked about it all, a lot already, but why does it matter? Why does it matter? Why does it matter that you're a citizen of an earthly government instead of just a resident? What's the difference between a citizen and a resident? Aren't they the same thing? Well, citizens are typically born or naturalized into a country's citizenry. If you read about Paul, um, you know, one thing Paul used to his advantage is that he was a born citizen. Other people had to pay to become Roman citizens. Paul was born into it, which put him at a different level. As a citizen, you're born or naturalized into a country's citizenry. And with that, you have certain rights and certain responsibilities. You enjoy privileges that are not available to everybody that's in the country. How many know that if you're a citizen, you get to do things that if somebody just shows up with a work visa, they're not able to do, right? You have a different set of, you also have different things you have to do that they don't have to do. Different rights and responsibilities and privileges. And citizens typically are free, contributing, and voting members of society. Uh, We don't have slavery, praise God, in this country anymore, but when we did, were the slaves considered citizens, No, I don't know of any country where they ever had slaves that they let those slaves, hey, let's go in and unleash your chains so you can go to the ballot box and cast your vote and then come back and we got work for you this afternoon. That's not the way it works. If you're a slave, you don't get the privileges of a citizen, right? So freedom is part of being a citizen and to be a contributing through your taxes and other things and a voting member of society. Citizens do those things. Residents, however, are not born or naturalized into a country's citizen population. They often come over as refugees 
as slaves or as uh, temporary workers. We see that a lot now. We don't have a lot of slaves. We do have a lot of refugees and temporary workers in the United States right now. And there's nothing wrong with that, but do they have different responsibilities, rights, and privileges than the citizens? Yes, they do. They don't enjoy the full benefits of life in this country. I used to, I mean, I still do have a lot of people that I work with that are not uh, full-fledged citizens. But, I, you know, when I was in the Marine Corps, I had a lot of guys I'd work with that would come from other countries. And they, a big goal of theirs was to become citizens. Well, if there was no big reward to be a citizen, why would they work to do that? Right? Why are people trying to become citizens so desperately if it's not worth it? There is a difference. There is a difference between being a resident and a citizen. Well, what is the difference? Well, citizens differ from residents in a couple of ways. The first one is ownership. Citizens own the country while residents just, remember Monopoly, you wouldn't go to jail, you would just be visiting. A lot of time residents are just visiting, but citizens, they have ownership. Everybody say ownership. Psalm 115, 16 says, The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the children of men. That's us. So God has given us ownership over the earth, and we've divided the earth into these earthly governments. If you're a citizen of an earthly government, you are an owner. Everybody say, I'm an owner. I'm an owner. And if we own it, it belongs to us. We're responsible for what happens there. Praise God. A second way we differ is leadership. Leadership. Citizens lead the country, and residents end up being subjected to their decisions. Um, that, that one, more than anything else, is a, is a big part of why it matters to see yourself as a citizen of an earthly government, not just a resident. The Lord wants you to take an ownership role in the earth, not just uh, passing through a relationship with it. He wants you to be an authority. He wants you to be a decision maker. He wants you to be a mover and shaker. He doesn't want you to sit around and be a helpless victim and, oh, well, they passed this law, Lord. There's nothing I can do. Rapture me home. No, he wants you to be active. Hallelujah. He's got you here now to make a difference, not just to be a passerby. The Lord didn't keep you on the earth to just sit around and watch the cars go by and think, oh, what was me? Call me home. No, he put you here to be a difference maker. Praise God. Hallelujah. And and we can do that in a citizen role. If we don't like something as a resident, you just sit around and feel bad about it. If you don't like something as a citizen, praise God, you can change it. You can vote differently. You can pray about it. You can go through and run for office yourself until you get things the way they need to be. You have a lot of options as a citizen that residents don't have. And the Lord was intentional about that. He put you here in whatever country you're in at the time that we're in right now for you to make a difference not only in the other places you are, but in your government. Amen. We are divinely appointed to be citizens of earthly governments during our lives. That is a divine appointment. You may be divinely appointed as, I'm I'm divinely appointed, I'll use me because I'm the one we can see right now. I'm divinely appointed as a husband, as a saint, as a father, as my occupation, as a lot of different things. Well, one thing that I'm divinely appointed as is a citizen of the United States of America. That was part of God's plan for me. Amen. We are divinely appointed as citizens of earthly governments during our lives. With this appointment, we have an obligation to use our authority as citizens to help our country's government fulfill God's purposes for earthly government. And we do this by praying, by voting, by submitting and obeying the laws we have, and by serving. James chapter 4, verse 17. You, you don't have this on the screen. But the Lord ministered this to me this morning after I had everything set up. I said, therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is a sin. If you didn't know any better, you could be excused. But now you know better. Hallelujah. 
the Lord has put you here as a citizen of earthly governments on purpose for you to step in and do something. Everybody say, do something. Do something. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to Proverbs 29, I believe, as Claire comes back up. As we are doing the Lord's work in our earthly governments, we see the fulfillment in Proverbs 29, verse 2. At the beginning, it says, when the righteous, everybody say, that's me. When the righteous are in authority. Now, God has given you authority. And whether you, if you use it, then you're in authority, acting in authority. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when a wicked man rules, the people groan. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. It is time for the church to step up and use our God-given authority in earthly governments. We, we don't necessarily need to go have a revolution or anything crazy, but we need to be doing the things that the Lord has told us to do while we're here. For too long, we've been sitting by and letting other people uh, run things into the ground. That time has passed. It's time for us to step up and, and do what the Lord has called us to do. You have been listening to the ministry of Devon Alexander, pastor of True Life Fellowship Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. For more information, go to our website at www.truelifefc.org. You can also support this ministry financially through our website. Thank you, and remember to love, learn, live, and lead. Thank you.